0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in uh, Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. And I may even back up a little bit and do Matthew chapter 3. What are the highlights in the life of Christ? And if we're going to use the month of May to kind of review 10 years worth of study, that's not a lot of time for an awful lot of classes. But when you think through, what are the things that really jump out at you in the life of Christ? From last week we talked about Gabriel and how he showed up and announced the birth of John the Baptist to Zechariah, how he announced the birth of Jesus to the Virgin Mary. And those were some of the early, early classes that we dealt with 10 years ago in this in this series but then you think about the whole ministry from the baptism in the river jordan to the to the uh, early judean ministry to the galilean ministry walking on water feeding five thousand. you think about the parables that he taught the sermon on the mount you think about um the all of it discourse of course that's late driving out the money changers from the temple you think about all these things um raising lazarus okay What are the highlights that jump out at you? And then, of course, the cross and the resurrection and the appearances and the ascension and session. We have been fed an awful lot. And when you think of the big picture of everything, um, this is a study that's going to bless us for years and years to come. I mean, the rest of our lives, we can keep going back to this study, keep going back to these episodes, bring up these notes, listen to those classes. And uh, so, for the month of May, I want to use, at least between now and the Africa trip, I want to use these Wednesdays to um, kind of review some of these things, remind ourselves of what the Lord has blessed us with, and then uh, when we come back in June from uh, the Africa trip, then we'll uh, get uh, geared up and ready to go for the next series, for the Proverbs series that will begin in the month of June. All right, let's open with a word of prayer, asking God the Father to sanctify our thinking and to bless our study of his truth today, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, for the privilege that it is to assemble together. We thank you, Father, for um, these last ten years and all the wealth of doctrine that you have supplied. We pray that we might be diligent, Father, to take it in, to study it, to live it, to make application to live our lives as imitators of Jesus Christ. And I thank You that we've got four Gospels that give us His story, and uh, we've studied them all, Father, in the process of this uh, of this class. So we just thank You in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, last week we did, like I say, the early part. I'm going to go back to that here today. Um, again, clicking on Life of Christ there. You see where that came from? And... Um, Again, if you're not familiar with how the website works, I just like to, when I bring it up, I I look at our teaching schedule. This is where I go to most often and just click right there on the Life of Christ. And so, whoops, I clicked the wrong thing. I clicked Louis Roth. Go back. Life of Christ. There we go. And then, again, the most recent classes from top to bottom is how that's sorted. You can sort it from beginning to end or end to beginning If you just click on this listen button right there, you can sort it. You can sort it by topic, you can sort it by recording date, by speaker. Typically our classes all have the same speaker, but occasionally they don't. We had an evangelism class a while back on a Sunday night where uh, I had some, Dan had some, Doug had some. Uh, We've got some basics classes that are mostly me, but also some Dan and some Bob. So you can sort them by speaker or a recording date or the listening date. Also over here we have the outline, similar to the uh, Harmony of the Gospels outline that we have, and uh, I'm going to go to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Last week we did Birth, Infancy, and Adolescence of Jesus and John the Baptist, remember that? Uh, This week I want to go ahead and do the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And then within this section we've got other uh, episodes, okay? Because it ended with uh, the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. Let me put them in order. Listen, put them in listening order here. There we go. So it starts from lesson 41. Jesus baptized, Jesus tempted, the first disciples called, the first miracle. What was the first miracle? Water into wine. There you go. All right, so Jesus baptized. Three lessons there. lesson 41, 42, and 43. And I'm not going to review everything that's in there. If you want to go listen to those three, go listen to those three. But then you can bring up the notes here. Jesus baptized. And while you're listening to the MP3 files, you can have these notes to be reading from. And just follow along and read. All right. So let's look at Matthew chapter 3. <clears throat> interestingly enough this is the message of the forerunner that the kingdom of heaven is at hand in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand there's that repent message remember we studied this recently when it came to the great cognition episode at the, in the, uh, before the ascension repent is not a gospel message repent he's not shouting at unbelievers telling them to repent he's talking to jewish believers with a frame of reference for the coming kingdom that they need to adjust their thinking adjust the their uh, the conduct of their life in conformity with the kingdom that's at hand and that's what they're going to be preaching in the tribulation as well what uh, the forerunner the herald is going to preach there in the tribulation as well to repent for this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. The repentance preaching is to prepare the coming citizens of the kingdom for the coming king. It has nothing to do with giving the gospel to an unbeliever and bringing somebody to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. All right, so all Jerusalem was going out to him, all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Nothing to do with getting saved, okay? People try to take that verse and say, well, you're not saved until you confess your sins publicly and you get baptized and you go through all... They twist this verse into their understanding of what it means to, uh, to be saved, what it means to receive eternal life and not go to hell when you die. All right? But you guys know better. All right, you know that they are identifying with the herald, and they are being baptized by the herald. They are publicly repenting, they are publicly confessing, and they are publicly declaring that they are ready to enter into that kingdom when the king arises. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? This message is not for you. You're not even saved. You're a bunch of unbelievers. You brood of vipers. You're children of the devil. This message is not for you. This repentance activity is not for you. Until you are saved, then you can bear forward, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. But until then, you got no business being here. That's what he says in verse 8. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you truly are saved, come back when you're saved. And do not suppose you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you, from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. He's not impressed with your lineage. Okay? your racial, uh, your racism or anything else. All right, now this is the context then when Jesus appears. And when Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized from him, remember his childhood was in Galilee. He was raised in privacy. He was raised in obscurity. From the point where herod murdered those babies satan didn't know if he was successful or not didn't know if he had successfully uh crushed the christ or if he'd ended the christ he, there's a prophecy that he would bruise him on the heel uh, and that jesus would bruise him on the head or crush him on the head and uh, uh so the attack on the the babies there in bethlehem was was uh an attack to try to keep that from from happening now They fled to Egypt, they came out of Egypt, they settled in Nazareth, they settled in Galilee in a little know-nothing village, a tiny little village in Galilee, and uh, for 30 years, for 30 years, Satan does not know whether he was successful or not. Satan does not know, Satan's not omniscient, Satan doesn't know these things. If Satan would have known that it failed, he would have kept uh, trying, kept attacking, kept hounding. He didn't know who Joseph was, didn't know who Mary was. All right. Now, Jesus arrived from the Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? Now, with respect to John's baptism, he's right. With respect to um, having a citizen of the kingdom confess their sins and repent and orient to the king and, and humble themselves for the coming kingdom... John's right. Jesus should not take part in that baptism. That John himself would be a subject of that kingdom who needs for the king to baptize him. Okay? But Jesus is not coming to have a baptism of repentance. He's not, his baptism is different than all those that preceded him. All right. Jesus answered and said to him, "...permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness." And so he submits himself, he humbles himself to something he does not need. He identifies with his citizens, the citizens of this kingdom. He's the king, but he's going to identify with his kingdom. He's going to identify with his citizens, identify with those who need the king. And this identification is very similar to what he does in coming to earth in the first place, where he identifies with sinners. He identifies with you and me. He takes our place. So that in identification with us, he can be our substitute on the cross. All right? The identification is very important. So, as you look, follow along in the outline here. Um, point one there John the Baptist undertook a wilderness preaching ministry as herald of the Christ. His proclamation, repent, that is, change your thinking. It's not an emotional thing, it's rational, it's thinking. Meta The noose is the mind or the thinking. Uh, Regret is a different animal. Okay, we've taught that. For the kingdom of heaven is drawn near. The explanation is it is arriving. It is imminent. It is about to be unveiled. His clothing and his diet were very reminiscent of Elijah. And I don't think that's an accident. He deliberately dressed that way. Uh, He is the forerunner. Elijah is promised to come back. Uh, and at the end of Malachi, Elijah is promised to come back. We saw that last week. He will be a herald. It's just that he's going to be a herald of the second advent, not the first advent. Okay, John, uh, John comes in the spirit and power of Elijah as a uh, forerunner and a herald. He enjoyed unparalleled response to his preaching as great multitudes came out of Jerusalem, Judea, and the Jordan region in order to be baptized. This likely followed... Uh, now, it's interesting... All the commentaries that try to tell you that that uh, they stole this from a Judaism practice, that they stole this from a practice that the Jews would use when they would take a Gentile convert and proselytize them and, and bring them into the uh, Jewish faith, into the observance of Judaism. Unfortunately, I think it's not accurate. I believe that Judaism's baptism likely followed 70 AD. We, have no, we cannot prove... And it's not even likely that it took place prior to 70 A.D. That that was a Jewish ritual, and and that they actually probably ripped off the Christians when they were baptizing their proselytes and forcing them to identify with Israel. And even the uh, the, um, the, the 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 details are different too, because you don't in the, in the Jewish proselyte baptism they dunk themselves; they're not dunked under by somebody else and then brought back up by somebody else. Uh, A a Gentile proselyte to Judaism would self-dunk and uh, come back up. Anyway, there are uh, records of the Essenes at Qumran that do precede John the Baptist, but their rites also are different, and their message was different. So anyway, I put those notes in there so that you can contrast it in case you're reading Edersheim or you're reading somebody else who's trying to defend the the, the baptism practice as somehow an adaptation from a Jewish practice. I think it's the other way around. All right, when the religious leader showed up to participate, he confronted them. (laughs) He confronted them. He wasn't shy about confronting them. In fact, this is very much uh, reminiscent of Elijah before the prophets of Baal. He challenges them. He says, My God is mightier than your God, and what are you even doing here? All right. This is the role of an Old Testament prophet. This is the role of an of an Elijah or a, a Nathan or a Samuel. All right, or a John the Baptist. That they were Old Testament prophets, and they God would send them to kings, to leaders, to uh, directly confront false teaching. Okay. This is kind of an attitude that I believe crusading type Christians want us to have today, and they're kind of mad when we don't. You know, that somehow today as in the church we should be, you know, hey, I'm the, I'm the pastor of Austin Bible Church, right? I should, I should exercise God's authority and mar- march down there to the Capitol or walk right into the governor's office and, and tell Rick Perry the, you know, whatnot, okay? <laughs> and, and um, well, that's a philosophy of ministry, that comes from the Old Testament pattern of a prophet of Yahweh to the covenant nation of Israel. That is not a philosophy of ministry that has any New Testament justification. Okay? And uh, in fact, I think just the opposite. I think 1 Corinthians makes it very clear secular courts are secular courts, the church is the church. And we handle us in this flock, in this Local assembly. This is our jurisdiction, and we comp- we we are competent to constitute the highest court of this jurisdiction. And those judges out there are no account to us, just as we're no account to them. All right. Anyway, I think this uh, issue here and with uh, the confrontation. People want to, or or even um, going back to the prophets of Baal, and uh, and that. We're not going to engage in that activity today. John the Baptist understood that his ministry was temporary and the one who was coming would perform a greater baptism. The one who was coming would perform a greater baptism. In Matthew Matthew 3 here, verses 11 and 12, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. With the Holy Spirit and fire. So John knew that his was temporary and Jesus would be permanent and eternal. He knew that there was a contrast of the lesser and the greater. He knew that he must decrease and Jesus must increase. But in connection with this baptism now, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And did Jesus do that in first Advent? Did he march around with a winnowing fork and start whooping on people? No. Did he baptize with the Holy Spirit during his first Advent? No. Did he baptize with fire during his first Advent? All of this is second Advent. This is all the second Advent of Jesus Christ. The culmination of the Armageddon campaign, the victory over the Gentiles, the victory over Satan... The bringing in of the kingdom. To bring in the wheat into the barn is bringing in the the, the remnant, the believers, into the millennial kingdom. And the burning of the chaff with unquenchable fire is when the unbelievers are removed and thrown into hell at the beginning of the millennium. The separation of sheep and goats. The separation of believers and unbelievers. None of that is 1st Advent. It's all 2nd Advent. And none of that is day of Pentecost, start of the church. Okay? Don't try to look at that verse and say, oh, baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's what we have in the church age. Yes, we do have the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the church age, but not the baptism of fire. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit and of fire. And this is second advent with the winnowing fork. This is the separation of the wheat and the chaff. Okay, so, don't fall for it when people try to tell you, because, see, here's the thing. They say, oh, that's the Holy Spirit. Oh, I have the Holy Spirit. It's got to be the same. No. Similarities, not identity. Particularly when the differences don't allow the identity. And that's what we have here. So, um, the one who was coming, the coming one, would perform a greater baptism. If you want more on that, Malachi 3, uh, verses 2 and 3. Likewise, Joel 2, verses 28 and 29. The promise of the Holy Spirit upon all flesh Is a second advent promise, not a day of Pentecost church age promise. All right. The herald fulfilled his purpose when the Christ appeared. When the Christ appeared. Basically, he's out of a job. From this day onward, I mean, John the Baptist, he was born for this purpose, to herald the Christ. And when the Christ appeared, he's done. Okay? So, Jesus arrived from Galilee, verse 13. And uh, John tried to prevent him. He said, I'm retired now. I'm done. (laughs) I need to be baptized by you. All right. So, permitted at this time, Jesus answered and said to him, permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. I don't know how it could be any more clear than this, right? You've got Trinity. You've got the Father with a booming voice. You've got the Holy Spirit in the dove. You've got Jesus in the flesh standing right there. There's, there's your Trinity. You've got uh, the herald, the forerunner, announcing this is the Christ. God says this is the Christ, and so he begins his earthly ministry. The herald fulfilled his purpose when the Christ appeared. Matthew three thirteen through seventeen. Jesus was sinless and perfect. He had no need to be baptized as a visible sign of his repentance, but he did so anyway in order to identify with his brethren. I mean, there was nothing to confess. Well, you know, somebody like me would take all day standing there spilling my guts, all kinds of stuff. But Jesus, nothing to confess. All right, dunk me under. You can imagine how short does that go. It's like clearing customs. You walk up there, you hand them your little slip you filled out and say, I've got nothing to declare. And they say, okay, welcome. You know, And they stamp your passport and do whatever. You know, What was he going to confess? There's nothing. He's sinless. He's righteous. He is the righteous Holy One that has come to deliver Israel. Like I say, everybody else that was coming, they had, they had stuff to confess. They had all kinds of stuff to confess as they were identifying with the coming kingdom. Uh, the scripture on this, Isaiah fifty three twelve. We can look at that briefly. We're familiar with that. It's the final verse of Isaiah 53. Isn't it handy having these notes available? You could just print it off the page, tuck it in your Bible, use it for a family devotion, or use it for a personal Bible study. Maybe. Uh, Flush it out a little bit deeper. Maybe add a few verses here and there. Just, you know, fix all the heresy that's probably in there. <laughs> yeah. You know? Really is handy having these uh, just sitting there on the website, made available for anyone that wants to take use of them. All right, Isaiah fifty three twelve. Like I say, it's the last verse. I don't want to get lost in this, or I'd spend the whole hour teaching Isaiah fifty three. But he dies, he rises again. Okay. He dies. He dies. He he gives himself for our sins. And yet, because he's willing to do this, he's got the Father's promises for what comes after. Okay? The Father sees it and he's satisfied. So verse 12, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death. Because he died. The Father has an eternal future for Him that is greater than anything anyone else will ever enjoy. He poured out Himself to death. He was numbered with the transgressors. Yet, He Himself bore the sin of many. Numbered with the transgressors. Identified with. Accounted. Remember imputation? We are accounted. He is accounted as one of us. And all of our unrighteousness was accounted to His account. He Himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. It was necessary to identify with his brethren, to identify with sinners. And so he does so. Both the Holy Spirit and God the Father testify to his sonship. Both the Holy Spirit and God the Father testify to his sonship. We read that in Matthew 3, 16 and 17. Uh, The Holy Spirit descends as a dove. The, The voice out of heaven says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This relates back to Isaiah chapter 42, the fact that it's God himself that comes, God himself, the Son and the Chosen One, Isaiah 42, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. This is the public anointing of Jesus Christ, as prophet, priest, and king, as the anointed one, the chosen one, the servant that is going to redeem humanity. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. He's not promoting himself. He is not a celebrity. a bruised reed he will not break. A dimly burning wick, he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. See, but it's eternal justice. It is the justification of fallen humanity. It is pleasing and satisfying God the Father. It is see, justice is such a buzzword today, and the people want equal rights and women's rights and gender rights and gay rights and all these everything else they want justice in in education. They want. Uh, Social justice. Everything is justice this, justice that, and it's a bastardization of the term. There is one absolute standard of righteousness, one sovereign God of the universe who can administrate the universal justice for all eternity. And that's what Jesus Christ brings forth. All right, he will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice on the earth. Coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. You see, a lot of this kind of crosses from First Advent to Second Advent. You notice that? Many of the Old Testament prophecies with respect to the coming Messiah, they don't distinguish between first and second Advent. They give, they give a comprehensive messianic view. Uh huh. Sorry about that. Still using a loner laptop, and I should have paid more attention. All right. That's my clue. My screensaver kicks in. I've been rambling too long. (laughs) All right. The Holy Spirit, God the Father, testified to His Sonship. This is the one. This is the one. You know, I don't know what a Jewish person does today in rejecting Jesus of Nazareth as their Christ. Because when you look through all the Old Testament passages that talk about what His qualifications are going to be like and, and where He's coming from, you know, you' look at all these passages you've got to be looking for a Davidic virgin in Bethlehem in the first century. okay? You've got to be looking for the 69/ sevens on, on Daniel's calendar, and, and they all admitted that in the, in the first century anyway, the rabbis all admitted and said, "Well, we're past that now, okay no matter how, no matter how you work the math. And a lot of the medieval rabbis did a lot of creative things with their math, with their uh, all trying to find some way to uh, deny that Jesus of Nazareth was the fulfillment of that. And um, he, and they all have to admit that the Daniel calendar is done. That that was completed in the first advent. and They don't call it first advent, but that was completed. They know that their temple was destroyed and they know that Daniel spoke of that. Anyway. But they don't want to admit that uh, they missed their Christ or they crucified him. John the Baptist continually exalted the coming one and he denied any greatness for himself. And for this, not only do we have Matthew, uh, but we also have John chapter 1, uh, John chapter 3. We can look at those as well. That, that's a good parallel text to Matthew 3. John chapter 1. I'm not the Christ. <laughs> okay. John 1.19, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed. We talk about making the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. We have our own confession when we publicly stand and name the name of Christ. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Then they asked, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? No. That's out of Deuteronomy 18 and Then the uh, fulfillment there is the Messiah. We know that. Not Muhammad. Alright. Then they said to him who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And he said I am and here's the quotation from Isaiah 40. I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as Isaiah the prophet said. Okay. Kind of fun the way we have... Um, Isaiah 40 there, and we were just in uh, Isaiah 42. It's like the whole gospel can be taught in Isaiah, right? Looking forward to teaching Isaiah and Jeremiah. Says me, I'm I'm just a guy getting ready for the one you really got to deal with. (laughs) Right? I'm a nobody. Over to chapter 3. And this is interesting too, because verses 22 through 26, after he baptizes Jesus, and some of the disciples follow after, right? Why don't all of them follow after? Why do some stay with with, with the herald? When the king is here, why hang out with the herald? And so, John 3, 22, after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. Notice, though, that was still water baptism. That wasn't the Holy Spirit and fire there in in uh, the region of Aenon near Salim because there was much water there and people were coming and were being baptized and so this is still preaching the kingdom the kingdom is at hand so therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with the Jew about purification and they came to John and said to him Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you testify behold he is baptizing and all are coming to him and yeah They're complaining like that's bad news. It's actually good news. I want to ask the question, well, why are you guys still here? Why are you following me? What are you asking me? Why why, why don't you go follow him? And John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. I'm not going to grumble about the size of his parking lot or the budget or the people in his church. Are you kidding? Jealousy between pastors or between churches and whatnot. That's stupid. You know, what can he have that Christ didn't give him? Okay. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I'm not the Christ, I have been sent ahead of him. Why are you still here? (laughs) He who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and bears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. I mean, you're mixing up the groom and the friend of the bridegroom, right? The, The groom and the best man. I mean, the best man is happy and everything, but he's not taking the bride home. When the wedding's over, it's the groom that's taking the bride home. And the best man says, hey, I did my job. I didn't lose the ring. I, I made my little speech, offered my toast at the reception. But, you know, when all that's done, it's the groom that gets in the limo with the bride and off they go. Why are you guys still here? <laughs> Why are you still following John the Baptist when he already announced this is the Christ? All right. I think it's a great humility. And uh, you know when Jesus said of those born among women there is no one greater than John the Baptist. I don't find it coincidental at all that he's exhibiting the humility that he's exhibiting. That that is what God considers greatness. is humility. It's not the power of his miracles or the forcefulness of his message or the impact that he had on culture and society. None of that. how humble he was before the Lord probably, I think, the humblest man ever until Christ himself walked this earth. Finally, then point five, this unique baptism event was the public anointing of the Christ. It's necessary to fulfill all righteousness. It marked the beginning of his earthly ministry. It was from this point on that Satan knows that he had failed. When the Holy Spirit descended and the heavens opened and the Father said, this is my beloved Son, Satan knew immediately. Ah, Missed him, right? Missed him 30 years ago. Didn't get him when I killed all those babies in Bethlehem 30 years ago. Okay. And uh, now he knows. And so, is it coincidental that Matthew 3.17 is followed by Matthew one? That this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. <laughs> That didn't take long, did it? Okay? He's publicly unveiled. No more privacy, no more obscurity, no more private life. All right? He is now in public ministry. Full-time, what we call today, full-time Christian service. Okay? That you are now, you've put your hand to the plow and there's no looking back. And it is open season in the angelic conflict. The bullseye is on your back and the devil's got this supply of arrows coming at you. The public anointing of the Christ marked the beginning of his earthly ministry as per Isaiah 61.1. In the Old Testament, the following offices were anointed. Prophets, priests, and kings. We dealt with this a week ago in our training class, remember? Talked about Messiah. What does Messiah mean? So, Lewis and Dan and Doug can't answer, but the rest of you can answer. The word Messiah. See, here's the thing. Messiah is abused by a lot of people. Messiah is misused, and sadly, it's misused by Christians who should know better. But when somebody says Messiah, what do they mean by that? What do they think Messiah means? And they got the wrong idea. So what does Messiah mean? What? Messenger? Nope. What does it mean? Leader? Nope. What does it mean? Ethel? Yes, anointed one. Anointed one. But the wrong definitions. A Messiah is not a messenger. A Messiah is not a leader. A Messiah is not a savior. That's very common. They think a Messiah is someone that's going to deliver them from bad stuff. Right? They call, them, they call our president the Messiah. Because he is going to bring about racial equality and all this stuff. He's, he's the Messiah. He is going to deliver. A Messiah is not a deliverer. But that's how it's used in common English usage now. Because of, I think, Satan's desire to confuse everybody on what the Messiah really is. The verb mashach means to smear, to anoint, to take oil and to consecrate something. To smear, not a a, a political smear or a a reputation smear. I'm talking about um, a, a rubbing of oil. No, not even chosen. Okay, uh, chosen often is used together with mashach, but it's not the verb to choose. It's the verb to to uh, consecrate, to smear, all right, to to apply the, the holy the oil of holiness. And so, uh, furnishings needed to have oil rubbed on it, right? Not because we are not polishing wood, but because we are anointing the furnishings with the oil of, of incense or with the oil of holiness to recognize that this is something consecrated, something special. This is not just a, a normal dish, a normal spoon, a normal uh, pan or tray. It is anointed as a vessel for the Lord. Likewise, the altar, the clothing, they were anointed. The priests were anointed. The, the oil was poured over their head and smeared in their, over their, in, through their hair and on, over their head. Their clothing was anointed. The anointing with oil consecrated that person for service. Prophets were anointed. Priests were anointed. Kings were anointed. And if we took the time... How does that happen? Yes, sir. We are anointed. anointed. Yes. Okay, there is a gesture thing that I'm not getting with this touchpad. I'm going to quit using that. (laughs) I don't know how to use gestures. Some of you... People. I don't know. Someday I'm going to learn how to use touchpads, but until then I'm just going to harbor mental attitude sin against the person that invented it. Obviously a communist, probably an unbeliever. All right. Prophets, priests, and kings. Jesus Christ is prophet, priest, and king, so he needs a threefold anointing, right? We have an anointing in Christ. The Holy Spirit, when we are saved and we are baptized, that's called an anointing. Oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit. So all of the Old Testament typology of oil being smeared on things was a picture of the Holy Spirit. We have the reality. That's why we don't need the oil. That's why we don't need the picture. All right. you want examples of this? Let's look at these. 1 Kings 19. And then we can uh we got time, we can uh get into the temptation also. First Kings nineteen. And verse sixteen. There, I mean, there's several places you can turn, but this is kind of easy. Uh instructions here. What are you doing here, Elijah, as he's running away from the Lord? I alone am left. I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword, and I alone am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And you're not doing anything, God. You're not helping me. You didn't help any of them. I'm hiding in this cave now. And the Lord said to him, go. Go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus and when you have arrived you shall anoint Hazael king over Aram. So the agent of God publicly testifying that this is the new king and he uses oil to do it. And Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint king over Israel and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Mahola you shall anoint as prophet in your place. There's a good verse that show you that prophets are anointed. Priests are anointed, kings are anointed. All right, so this verse we could even use for kings and prophets. Uh, priests are anointed, Exodus twenty-eight forty-one. Exodus 28, as they're getting instructions for the furnishings and the garments and the priesthood. Aaron's sons, you shall make tunics and you shall make sashes for them and you shall make caps for them. For glory and for beauty. For glory and for beauty. There's nothing wrong with having an attractive whatever. Just understand the basis for it. Understand the reality of it. It is both for glory and for beauty. The temple was glorious. The temple was also beautiful. Nothing wrong with having an attractive church building. It's better than an ugly church building. But we don't worship the attractive church building. We don't insist on having something Beautiful, saying that that is the same as glorious. It's not. There is glory and there is beauty. And I think in the things that we do to uh, to glorify Jesus Christ, we want to exhibit our regard. And we can either exhibit a high regard or a low regard. All right. You should put them on Aaron, your brother and his sons with him. You shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as... Priests. So anointing is one thing, ordaining is another, consecration is another. Three activities here that they may serve me as priests. So prophets are anointed, priests are anointed, and of course kings are anointed. We've already seen a couple of wicked kings there in First Kings. Uh, you've got some good examples. First uh, Samuel 9:16 that would be Saul. 16:3 would be David, and Second Samuel. Let's take a look at these. 1 Samuel 9. This is a great chapter, by the way. First, I'm, glad, I'm glad the Lord took us here. This is a great chapter, by the way, to show you what, what what's normal for the daily life of a prophet. All right? This is, this is just what it means to be a prophet for Israel. And um, Saul's father loses his donkeys. And so uh, Kish sends Saul out to find the donkeys. He says, take now uh, one of the servants and uh, go search for the donkeys. All right. And so um, he's out there looking for the donkeys. But um, the Lord is going to um, give Samuel a warning about this and um, he's going to tell Samuel about this time tomorrow uh, you're going to see this guy and he's the guy you're going to anoint so um, anyway I think there's a lot in this chapter verse 15 a day before Saul's coming the Lord had revealed this to Samuel a day before this is, this is how prophets would work in the Old Testament. This is, how, uh, this is how Jesus operated in the Gospels. How John the Baptist operated in the Gospels. About this time tomorrow I will send a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. Alright. And then uh, when it happened the next day, verse 17, the Lord said, behold, that's the guy I was talking to you about. The man of whom I spoke to you. So there's no ambiguity. He told him a day ahead of time and then the next day he said, that's the guy. And so Samuel goes over there and introduces himself and says, hi, I'm Samuel. You're the new king. All right? Paraphrasing. But now this is this is what I'm talking about. This is Sam, No one looks at this and, and thinks that Samuel is omniscient. But they read in the Gospels about how Jesus sees Philip under a, a palm tree and says, or Nathaniel, says, when you were under the tree, I saw you. And they want to say, ooh, Jesus was using his omniscience there. Or he sees Nathaniel and says, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. I don't think there was an omniscience at all. This was just Jesus operating as, a, as an Old Testament prophet. Because um, I, I tell you, he was tempted in all things even as we are. I don't have omniscience. He couldn't have used omniscience. He emptied himself. He laid aside his privileges and took the form of a man. You understand if Jesus used omniscience even one time in his earthly ministry then he's not our substitute. He did not identify with us. He, he And every miracle he did was the Holy Spirit's empowerment. He served as a prophet of the Old Testament. Never once did he use his omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence. He laid aside all of his attributes so that he could identify in humility with you and with me. So keep uh, 1 Samuel 9 in your uh, in your uh, Am, ammunition belt loop there and and uh, make use of that. Do you have a question on that? Yes, same thing. Yeah, he did not entrust himself to them for he knew their hearts. Exactly. He didn't know their hearts because he used omniscience. He knew their hearts because... As a prophet, God had clued him in to which ones to make disciples and which ones not to make disciples. That's right. That's not omniscience in that passage. That's, again, the role of a prophet. Good observation. All right, so that's chapter 9. Chapter 16 is uh, David. And this one makes me laugh every time. <clears throat> First Samuel 16, because at the end of chapter 15, when uh, Saul, when Samuel tells Saul that he's fired, he uh, Samuel turned to go in 15:27, and and uh, Samuel told Saul, the Lord has rejected you. I will not return with you. Saul's begging him, saying. Please pardon my sin, return with me that I may worship the Lord. Hey, let's go to church, right? Saul and Samuel tell Saul, I'm not going to church with you. I can't worship with you. I can't fellowship with you. Uh, Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go. Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. There's a metaphor for you. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. (laughs) And that drove Saul insane. Demonically insane for the rest of his days. Livid that this little runt shepherd boy was better than him. That's your neighbor better than you. Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his tens of thousands. And this prophetic message just ate him up. So, um, and then at the end of this chapter, then Samuel, uh, Saul thought he was going to use Agag, king of the Amalekites, as a hostage and a trophy. And, a, and uh, Samuel said, "No, Agag has got to die." And uh, he says, "Bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites." and Agag came to him cheerfully, and Agag said, "Surely the bitterness of death is past." He thought he was getting over because he had uh, deceived King Saul. And Samuel said, no, I'm not playing that game. Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so your mother is childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Chopped him up. You know, I think that the the, the money changers in the temple are awfully darn lucky that all Jesus did was make the scourge of, of cords and just flip over tables and drive them out. I mean, what would Samuel have done? Those prophets were... They didn't mess around. So chopped them up into little egg egg pieces. And and then anyway, I think he probably had them, little pieces taken all over Israel as a display. So in chapter sixteen, then, when uh the Lord sends Samuel to Bethlehem, uh in verse four. Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem, and the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, Do you come in peace? (laughs) You know, it's not always good news if a prophet's coming to town, right? Right in the aftermath of the Agag massacre. I said, I've come in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He's not going to sacrifice with King Saul. But he's come to Bethlehem and he's inviting the elders to come. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And, and they have the, Jesse in particular, is the Ephraimite, or the Ephrathite, we're told. Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be counted among the clans of Judah. Jesse is the Ephrathite. He is the clan leader for this tiny little village. And his sons are invited, given the place of honor. And so when they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. See, there's the anointed. There's the Messiah, the Mashiach. Surely, that's the Lord's anointed. That's the type of Christ. That's the king. Nope. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature. (laughs) You know, like these politicians. They got the, you know... Right, yeah. They got the hair, the teeth, and they're just they glow on the cameras and everything. You know. Hmm. God I have rejected him. God sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This is the true in the church age too. This is why he chooses the things that are not that he might nullify the things that are the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Consider your calling, beloved, we're told. Not many mighty according to the flesh. I think God picks, picks the biggest fools he can, the biggest morons he can, and gets them saved, makes them pastors, tries, you know, shows everybody that, hey, that knucklehead can get saved and grow. You can grow. Anybody can grow. So don't look at his appearance or the height of his stature. And then comes a Abinadab. Nope. The Lord says, nope, that's not him either. Then Shema, nope not him either seven of his sons passed before samuel and samuel said to jesse the lord has not chosen these i think jesse was clued into some of what samuel was here for and then samuel said to jesse are there are these all the children whoops are these all the children well all the important ones there remains yet the youngest son number eight son number eight is the type of christ There remains yet the youngest. Behold, he is tending the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now, probably that meant one of the older boys then had to go out and watch the sheep. That's got to be irritating. So he sent and brought him in. Uh, he was ready with beautiful eyes and handsome appearance. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him. This is he. So Samuel took the horn of the oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. He had lifelong indwelling of the Holy Spirit, never lost it. Even in his sin, he never lost it. Okay. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now it's remarkable because he's anointed here as a boy, but he doesn't become king for several years. Again, humility. I think there's aspects. There's typology. Jesus was anointed at his baptism, but he didn't become king right away. He went to the cross and then he went to heaven. Okay. Well, when we uh move on from there, we move on from the baptism to the temptation. There it is on the right, Jesus tempted. Two lessons there. Is that right? I taught Jesus tempted in two lessons? Jeepers. Verse forty-four, lesson forty-four and forty-five. Are the only two classes we did on Jesus tempted. Again, you can bring up the uh, the PDF document there. And so there's your notes from Matthew four, Mark one, Luke four, and it's ten fifty-six. So I'm not going to teach the temptation of Jesus in four minutes. Um. But he is the tempter. The tempter made a number of offers, three of which are recorded in Scripture. And the Lord answered all three with Deuteronomy quotations. All three with Deuteronomy quotations. Let's try to tie it together here and wrap up with Matthew 4. I do find it interesting. He fasted for 40 days and then he became hungry. That's not how my diet's gone. But... but Um, I can imagine the capacity he had for worshiping the Lord, worshiping his Father, and the intensity of that. After he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, I mean, how, how weak is he at this point? How famished? What is his physiological status having not eaten for 40 days? And if you're not in the best of physical condition, how well are you to handle spiritual testing? Okay? You ever get discouraged spiritually just because you're just worn out? You're tired? And Jesus had to face these temptations with the uh, physical um, limitations. If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Uh, we had that question last Wednesday night. Ellen asked that in question and answer night Wednesday night. What classic? What kind of if is this? Is it first class, second class, third class? Is this assumed to be true? Yes, it is assumed to be true. It is a first class condition. If and you are, since you are the Son of God. The devil admitted he was the Son of God. Since you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. I mean it's obvious. You're hungry. You haven't eaten. You should eat. You need to eat. God knows you need to eat. Why hasn't God given you any bread? So Satan's first recorded temptation acknowledged Jesus as the Son of God. The trap was for the Son of God to use his deity for selfish reasons. You know, if if God doesn't assign a miracle, don't do a miracle. What are you going to do? Tap into omniscience? Tap into omnipotence? You laid that aside. The trap was for the Son of God to use his deity for selfish reasons and to allow physical life needs to supersede spiritual life priorities. Just like Matthew 6.33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, all these things will be added unto you. But how many Christians do you know take temporal life and shove it up to the front and make that the priority? And then spiritual life, well we'll work around. We'll, we'll, we'll squeeze that in somehow. But come on, I've got to pursue my career, I've got to raise my kids, I've got I to gotta get married, I've got to find a wife, i got to have all this social life, all this temporal life, all this daily life. And they put physical life first. Bios comes before Zoe. And Jesus said no. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Spiritual life comes first. When the Father tells me I can eat, I will eat and not until. And if that means I die, then okay. That's the Father's good pleasure too. All right. Well, we've got the second temptation, the third temptation. And I'm out of time. Yes, ma'am. Well, mhm. No, several others had the uh, Moses had the holy Spirit um most of the prophets were told the judges, the spirit of God would come upon them, but but the spirit would also depart from the judges. Samson would lose his strength, and the spirit would depart. Um, I think Moses and David. And maybe Samuel are the only ones that have the lifelong indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the Old Old Testament. And there aren't many. Okay, yes sir. Uh Uh-huh. Heart, mind, soul, and strength. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In fact, if you find that verse, find where Jesus quoted that verse in the in the Life of Christ ministry and then look on the Harmony of the Gospels diagram, you'll see which episode covered that. And then, um, I don't have my Bible software this morning, but if you find that verse, find on the Harmony of the Gospels where that episode was and then you can navigate to that episode in the Life of Christ series and, and it'll all be laid out right there. Yes, ma'am. Mhm. All oh, right. The filling we can lose, that's right, but the indwelling you and I can never lose. And the same thing for David in the Old Testament, because he said in Psalm, in his confession Psalm, Psalm fifty-one, he said, "Do not take your spirit from me." So, but he was he was confessing his sin at that point. He said, "Against you and you only have I sinned." And do not take your Holy Spirit from me, so okay, he's the, the, the indwelling, because okay. he'd already lost the feeling, he already yeah, and probably the Old Testament indwelling was different from our indwelling anyway, and so I don't think that they had a fellowship feeling like you and I have a fellowship feeling. They did have an indwelling as as prophets, um but I don't think they had feeling like we do in in uh, grieving, quenching, resisting the Holy Spirit. Yeah, our filling from Ephesians 4, I don't think the Old Testament had available. So. Okay, thank you Father for this day, for your faithfulness, for sustaining my voice through the uh, 62 minutes of this class. Thank you for all your glory. In Christ's name, amen.